When you're the chief ethics officer for a well-known company like Airbnb, you sometimes have to weigh the conflicting demands of shareholders, employees, guests, hosts, and governments around the world against your own integrity. Rob Chestnut says that starting with integrity makes the rest of the decisions much more straightforward, and he hopes to share that message in his new book, Intentional Integrity. In this Hack the Process interview, Rob will tell us what he learned about teaching a typically dry subject like ethics from watching YouTube videos with his kids, how he approached the challenge of writing a book while working full-time, and why a company's demonstrable values matter now more than ever. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today I'm speaking with Rob Chestnut, and he is the Chief Ethics Officer at Airbnb, and he's also the author of a new book called Intentional Integrity. Rob, how are you doing today? David, fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. It should be interesting. And I don't think I have spoken with anybody with your title before, Chief Ethics Officer. What does that even mean? There are only a few of us, but it's, it's actually something that is growing. There's an increased emphasis among people in the business world on how to drive integrity into the culture of your company. And so you can do it without a Chief Ethics Officer. And having a chief ethics officer doesn't mean that you have integrity, but it, it does give one person sort of the responsibility of working on that important issue. So this is driving it into the culture of the company. So this is an internal thing more than an external thing? It's both, actually. But for Airbnb, it's both. For companies generally, I think it's both. It can be looked at in a number of different ways. You know, Airbnb is a company that believes in a stakeholder approach to business, which means and for Airbnb, we've got five. We have our investors, we have employees, we have guests, hosts, and the communities where we operate. And since we are in virtually every country in the world, that basically means the world. So the chief ethics officer thinks about how you operate with integrity regarding each of the stakeholders. That is a lot to keep track of. And I think that in, you know, in the media, we, we, see, we often hear about the things that have to do with how a company like Airbnb interacts with the guests, the hosts, and the countries or the locations where Airbnb is located. We don't hear as much about the internal aspects and, of course, the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders for a company like that as well. That's right. Um, and again, a lot of what we do is how we treat each other inside the company. There's no value in having a lofty mission that talks about doing wonderful things for the world if people aren't treating each other you know, with respect inside the workplace. So you, the inside has to match the outside. So when you came to Airbnb, were you the first chief ethics officer or was that a role that existed there when you came? Actually, when I came to Airbnb, I was the general counsel. I took over from yeah, Belinda Johnson, who was the first lawyer in the company, and she built the legal department out to about 30 people. I took it, and when I left the general counsel role, it was a little over 150 lawyers in 21 countries. But while I was general counsel, I became really interested in ethics and integrity because it was clearly an area that we've seen a lot of change in the world. Look, you know, during my time as general counsel, we had issues around discrimination, uh, where guests were being discriminated against by host. So we had that issue. 
We also saw neighbors like Uber undergoing a, a great deal of scrutiny for the way that people treated each other inside the company and how they Uber interacted with its stakeholders, the drivers and riders. And then the whole Me Too while I was the general counsel. And literally all these things got me thinking, you know, wow, somebody ought to do something about this so that Airbnb doesn't end up being the subject of a lot of headlines. And then I thought, well, who is it that deals with these sorts of things? There isn't an obvious person, but I realized that if someone doesn't deal with it, the general counsel is the one that's going to have it all sort of rain down on legal. And I thought, look, I'd rather be proactive and prevent problems than wait for them to come to me. And that got me really thinking about ethics and integrity inside of Airbnb. And then ultimately, I made the decision to move over and do it full time uh, and become the first chief ethics officer inside the company. That's, that's really quite a transition, and it speaks to an approach to entrepreneurship that's different from the way that a lot of people approach their careers. It's not something that a lot of people can engineer for themselves either. I'm really curious how you pulled that off. Well, you have to start at the top of the company. If the CEO isn't bought in to this idea of operating with integrity as a company, then you're done. You're not going to get anywhere with an ethics program or integrity because you know, a mid-level HR person can start it. But if everybody knows that the CEO is acting a particular way or the heads of the business are going to do things a particular way, then you just look like a hypocrite. So you start at the top. And, you know, fortunately for me, you know, Brian Chesky, you know, one of our founders and our CEO, a lot of people don't realize this about Brian. Brian never went to business school. Brian's parents were social workers. So Brian kind of grew up with this notion of how important it is to do good in the world. And he ended up going to design school, the Rhode Island School of Design, where they teach design in a way where design has to be good for the world. And if you design something that is done in a way that's bad for the environment, for example, then it's bad design. So Brian's whole approach to business, I think, is shaped by his background. And it enabled me to take this approach as an attorney when I came to him to talk about these things. And of course, you, you had his ear because of the position that you were in in the company. So you had the opportunity to make a pitch for this kind of a role. That's right. And I, my background is a little unusual. It's a little unusual even for a general counsel. I've sort of been involved in integrity and rules my whole life. I, I was a federal prosecutor when I came out of law school. So I started enforcing rules early in my career. And when I left the Justice Department, I went to eBay and was eBay's third lawyer. My first job, I remember at eBay, when I got there, I was employee 170. And Meg Whitman looked at me and said, we have to figure out what the rules are around what you can buy and sell on eBay. No one had any idea because it was the internet and what rules apply on the internet, particularly when you're a global company and laws may conflict. So Meg said, all right, you're responsible for figuring out all the rules around what we can buy and sell. Keep us out of trouble. And in that way, I, I've always then sort of been involved in figuring out what are the rules of engagement? How should people who are maybe total strangers or employees, how do they interact with each other? What are the rules of engagement? So I think I came to Airbnb with a background that was a little unique, but well-suited for a role like this. I can see where the challenges could come because you're thinking about what are the rules for something when you're creating this new thing in the sharing economy where people are, they're sharing their homes and they're creating hospitality areas in their living spaces. They never had that before. There was, that never existed before. 
let's take an example like one of the ones that you brought up where you've got potential hosts discriminating against potential guests. How does a chief ethics officer handle something like that? Well, I was the general counsel. In fact, I had only been the general counsel for about three months at that point. You know, the, the allegations started coming online through Twitter and the like that you know, individuals were being turned down due to the color of their skin. Quite upsetting to everybody in the company. So I, you know, what I did, of course, is I went off like any lawyer would and tried to figure out what is Airbnb's responsibility legally as a platform. If people on the platform discriminate, is Airbnb legally responsible? And in fact, is Airbnb's business even covered by things like the Fair Housing Act? So I go off, I do my research, I go have a, my first big meeting with Brian, sit down with Brian, and I start with, okay, Brian, I've taken a look at all the law in the area. This is what things look like. And Brian stops me. Brian says, I don't care. I said, what? What do you mean you don't care? And Brian said, I, I really don't care what the law is. If people are discriminating against each other on our platform, that is antithetical to our mission. It's against everything we believe in as a company. You know, the whole reason we are, we exist as a company is to help total strangers in different parts of the world understand each other and get along better. It's this notion of belonging, helping you belong wherever you are in the world. So if people are discriminating against each other on the website, we're failing as a company. So I don't care what the law is. We're going to fix this problem, which was great. I mean, and help me as the lawyer address the legal issues in a way that I felt great about. Because look, we we weren't going to allow it to happen, even if legally we could get away with it. That, that must have been a real mind shift for you, though, coming in from a lawyer's perspective. And I can, I can see where it could make your job more difficult rather than easier. I've always been fortunate enough to work for leaders who looked at me and said, do the right thing. Meg Whitman was very much that way. So like Meg when I was going through the rules around what we could buy and sell, Meg looked at me and said, Rob, I want you to try to figure out where the line is. And then I want you to take a big step back from it. We are successful financially. We don't need to skirt the law and do things that are edgy. So when you work for leaders that feel like there's a, an obligation, a broader obligation than just to drive this month's stock price, but to, to try to do the right thing in the broader sense, it frees you up as a lawyer to think about problems in different ways. And frankly, that's a lot of fun, a lot more fun, I think, than being a traditional lawyer. Although it, it sounds like it would challenge the role of the traditional lawyer, too, and it, it might make the role of the traditional lawyer more difficult to pursue. I find it easier. And I'll, I'll give you I can give you a couple of examples of how I think it's easier to do. So let's take I'll take give you an example from eBay and give you an example from Airbnb. My first month at eBay, I get an email from a user and I'm, I'm working on the rules, trying to figure this stuff out. And the user says, you guys are going to go to jail because you're selling jarts. I'm like, what's a jart? I don't know. So I go online. Jarts are these things that have big plastic fins and metal tips like a dart. But instead of throwing them into a dart board, the, the game was a kid's game where you put rings on your lawn and you throw these big plastic fin darts into these circles on your lawn. Well, the manufacturer of the game didn't really think through what kids would do. So, of course, kids start showing up in emergency rooms with jarts coming out of all parts of their body. And the government, Consumer Product Safety Commission, steps in and bans them. They declares a recall. So what ended up happening were these jarts ended up in people's garages and attics. And so when they're in your garage and your attic, 
they start ending up on eBay. So I looked at it and said, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder how many jarts we've got on eBay, you know, thinking maybe we've got like one person put some jarts on there. I remember looking and we had 20. I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't good because my real problem wasn't jarts. My real problem was every recalled item that had ever been recalled <laughs> by any government around the world. And how in the world are we going to deal with this, right? So because of the kind of leadership I had at eBay and because of my background in government, I did something that probably a lot of lawyers wouldn't do. I picked up the phone and called the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And I said, hi, I'm uh, eBay's lawyer, and I'd like to come talk to you. So I got on a plane, flew back to Washington, D.C., sat down in a room, and put a copy of the JARCS listings on the table and said, this is what's going on. And we are deeply concerned because we care about our customers. You know, we don't care about making a couple of bucks off the sale of JARCS. We're worried about our users getting hurt. And we want to follow the law. So I suggested a partnership where the Consumer Product Safety Commission would work with us, work with our team, provide messaging to customers, and help keep recall products off of eBay. Well, they loved the idea. A month later, the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission is on the morning shows, on television morning shows, talking about how they are working with Internet companies to keep consumers safe. eBay has been working with the Consumer Product Safety Commission now for 20 years, no legal problems at all. They partner looking for keywords, putting in messaging in areas like baby toys and baby supplies and power tools and the like. And it's been great. But it's all because instead of taking a, an approach where we have to hide everything and an approach that's based on fear, take an approach of do the right thing and cooperate with government and you be the one to call them. And it generally works out better. Yeah, I don't think that that's a story that I would normally associate with, with the legal departments in most companies. That's right. I was able to do a similar thing with discrimination at Airbnb. Unfortunately, the government was already aware of the discrimination. By the time we got involved, they had seen the online tweets. So the California Department of Employment and Fair Housing filed a class action lawsuit against Airbnb alleging discrimination. So after talking to Brian, I decided, well, it worked for JARTS. So I got on an airplane and flew down to LA and met with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. And they didn't want to meet with me at first. And I said, no, no. I said, you don't have to say anything. Just get in a room with me and let's talk. So I got in a room with them and I said, I explained to them exactly what our philosophy was. I said, look, you and I could get into a big argument about the legalities here, about whether eBay is technically responsible under the law. I said, that'd be a waste of your time and a waste of my time. Because frankly, we don't care. We're going to fix it no matter what. And we would like your help because it's a challenging problem. Discrimination exists in the world. So, of course, it's going to exist on Airbnb. But we don't want it on our platform, and we're not going to rest until we've eliminated it. Let's work together. And they they agreed. We worked out a settlement agreement where we agreed to take a number of steps that we had talked about together. And, you know, today it's a partnership, and we've made good progress on the issue. How has that progress been going? I'm sure a lot of people are curious, how, how does one implement something like that? Because objectively, it's hard to even envision. If discrimination exists in the world, how do you expect it to be eliminated from a platform? Well, you know, we did a couple things. We, we started off with something as easy as sending a message, a clear message to all of our users around the world, not just California where the lawsuit was filed or the United States that had the Fair Housing Act. We required all users the next time they logged into Airbnb to read a statement that said, I will treat everyone fairly and with openness and respect, regardless of the color of their skin, 
their religion, their gender, their natural origin, and so forth. And you had to affirmatively click a box and say that you agreed to operate that way, even if it's not the law of the particular country where you are. Now, a few people didn't do it. About 1% of the users wouldn't check the box. I don't know if they were racist or I'm sure some of them probably just didn't like being told what person they could have in their house or not. But that's fine. Airbnb said goodbye to those people. But we sent a clear message to everyone around the world what the expectation was. The next thing we did was we made it impossible to see the name or the photograph of a potential guest before you made the decision to allow them. So all you could do was look at their past reviews. You could not see a name or a picture, which technically made it a lot harder to discriminate against someone if you don't know their first name, last name, or their picture. So that and a few other things, I don't know if it's even now completely eradicated. I'm sure there are a few people who may still try. We have a basically a hotline where if any user feels as though they've been discriminated against, they can contact us directly and get immediate assistance. And we'll put them in a hotel if we can't find another Airbnb for them. But we will work with them in a concierge-like service to help them. You know, I think government civil rights groups have been really impressed with the reaction. Because, again, I think our, our interests are very aligned. We want to do the right thing. I can see that. And I, I can see that that would be challenging, too. And I like trying to apply that to a world where people have different approaches to these things. As a company, I believe, and this is true not just of Airbnb, this is any company. It doesn't matter whether you are selling tires or running a grocery store or running a global short-term rental platform. What do you stand for? What's your purpose? And if your purpose is only profit, then I think you need to go back and rethink your business. I think profit enables your purpose, but it can't be the only reason you exist. So once you stand for something, once you decide what your mission is, what your purpose is, your reason for existence, I I think that people then have to decide whether they want to be a part of that. And Airbnb users, by and large, you know, our purpose and mission is something that is aligned with the way a lot of people feel around the world, regardless of where they live. They welcome strangers. They believe that treating people with kindness is generally something that will be repaid in kind and will enrich everyone concerned. So if you pick a purpose like that, that resonates with others, you'll be successful. Yeah. And I think that that's almost a cultural universal that people around the world often refer to their own culture as the most hospitable culture and with pride, because that hospitality is something that I think every culture has a reason to get behind. It may be unique in each place, which we think is wonderful, by the way. We, We actually believe that there's a world where Everyone can do it their own way, their own unique, special way, which is what makes travel so wonderful. But there still needs to be a baseline, a fundamental baseline of the way that you treat other people. And you need to set that expectation clearly with people. And when you do, a lot of times, by the way, you find that people will rise to your level of expectation. uh, And you may actually find that you're inspiring people instead of simply reflecting what their values are. That's nice to think of that. I, I could see that. And one of the things I know with Airbnb in particular, the impact economically has been so massive in different communities that you know there have been ethics questions raised around that as well, where the fact that Airbnb has supplanted low-income housing in, in certain locations or made housing more difficult to secure in places where rents are high, like San Francisco, for example. I'm curious, as chief ethics officer, what have you seen around that and how have you tried to approach it? 
housing prices are a complicated issue. Oh yes, <laughs> and they're a very emotional issue. And uh, you know, I'll be I'll be very direct. Uh, we have competitors that like to take advantage of that fact, and they they certainly like to suggest that Airbnb is the problem and the cause behind rising housing prices, which is frankly silly. Airbnb is not responsible for the the high cost of living in many cities. In fact, if you look at two of the cities where Airbnb is the most heavily regulated are New York City and San Francisco. Those cities have placed rather extreme restrictive laws on Airbnbs in those cities, yet we haven't seen any reduction in the housing prices there. Nonetheless, to the extent that there are cities that believe truly that there is some impact, Airbnb is committed to working with them. In fact, I think you you see dozens of cities around the world where Airbnb has sat down with officials and worked on reasonable regulations to try to limit any potential impact on housing prices. And we've done that in places from London and Barcelona and Berlin to New York and uh, Chicago and, Lu- and Louisiana. Again, it, it goes back to that multi-stakeholder approach. When you have multiple stakeholders, any decision you make is probably going to hurt one or two stakeholders and help another couple of stakeholders. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could make business decisions that were good for everybody, your customers, your financial investors, and the world? Often, there may be a trade-off. There may be a sacrifice on individual decisions. So when you when you run a company with a multi-stakeholder approach, you recognize that you have an obligation to think about all the stakeholders. And so you can't consistently make decisions that are against the interest of the same stakeholders. You may need to balance decisions a bit. So that's been one of the ways we've looked at the housing price issue. And that is, you know what? The existence of Airbnbs is really good for guests. It gives people an opportunity to stay in places they wouldn't otherwise be able to stay. They wouldn't have access to. They wouldn't be able to afford it. It's really good for hosts. It enables a lot of hosts to actually stay in their homes and to be able to financially afford it and make a living. To the extent that it may have disruptions to neighborhoods, then we need to work on that. We need to apply rules around parties, for example. We may need to work with cities to limit the number of the Airbnbs in neighborhoods, but that's the way that we will balance it. We will work with certain decisions for to benefit one stakeholder and then try to benefit and balance it out by helping another stakeholder with another decision. When, so when I hear you talking about balancing the needs of different stakeholders, the word that comes to my mind is integrity and how you integrate those different intentions and make, make something that balances the need for everybody. And it kind of brings me back to the title of your book, Intentional Integrity. I'm curious how that relates to the work that you've been doing and you know what that means to you. Well, when I started on this journey, you know, Brian and I sat in a room and I thought, well, how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? And Brian asked, well, how do other companies do it? I'm like, well, I thought about it for a minute. You usually start with a code of ethics, but the code of ethics is something that a law firm usually gives you or you download it off the internet. You copy it from some other company and then you put your own logo at the top. You email it out to all your employees and say, hey, check a box and say you've read this. What an active integrity that would be. <laughs> right. And that doesn't really make a big difference, does it? You know, a lot of times, I'm sure people aren't even reading it. Well, what else do you do? Well, you've got these compliance posters. Well, companies put up compliance posters in break rooms. and They've got that little four-point font. But have you ever seen anyone actually read one of those compliance posters that are posted on the wall of a company? Never. So that isn't doing any good. Sometimes people put those beautiful integrity posters. You know, they've got the word integrity on that. They've got a sunset or a lake and a forest. 
But what does it mean? It just has the word integrity on there. Maybe they'll make you watch those two-hour sexual harassment videos that some third-party company made, but everybody's just clicking the button and trying to get through it as fast as they can. So it struck me that if you really cared about driving integrity into the culture of your company, you wouldn't do it this way. People are doing all these things just for compliance so they can check a box and comply with the law. But that's different than actually trying to drive integrity into your culture. So really, the book is about the journey that we took at Airbnb to do things a little differently and to authentically let employees know that we really want to do business this way with integrity and to get them engaged in that journey with us. And the great thing about it, and the reason I wrote a book about it, is I was shocked. Employees actually like it. You know, employees don't like going to work at a place that's being written about in the paper as doing all sorts of awful things to the environment and to each other, and that's hiding sexual predators or, you know, holding, you know, wild parties where terrible things are going on. It's their brand, too. So what I've learned is that, you know, like after one of our integrity sessions recently, a woman came up to me and David, not kidding, tears in her eyes at the end of the session. And she said to me, Rob, I left my last company, another big internet company in the Valley, because my boss kept propositioning me, but I didn't trust the company to do anything about it because they've had previous problems. She said, if I had heard a leader in the company stand up in front of people in the company and say the things that you've just said. I would not have left my last company. I would have reported. And she said, if I if I have a problem at Airbnb, I'm reporting it because a leader has taken the time to have an honest, authentic conversation with us about it. So I know you mean it. And that's what we're after. Interesting. Now, you, you mentioned integrity sessions. And is that an alternative to the, the checkboxes and the videos that you force people to watch? This is a different approach. Tell me, tell me what an integrity session is. We do the things, all the things that I mentioned before and made fun of a little bit, we do it because you need to comply with the law. But we also don't pretend that that's suddenly going to give us integrity. So we created our own code of ethics, for example, one that actually uses Airbnb language that relates specifically to our purpose and our mission, and one that our employees created with us. It wasn't, you know, Rob going off like Moses up the mountain and coming back with stone tablets and saying, this is the way you must act. You know, I recognize that integrity can mean slightly different things to different people, depending on what their religion is, where they grew up, what country they're from, what their socioeconomic background is. So we all need to get on the same page, but to get on the same page, we need to listen to each other and understand the different perspectives and then relate it to our mission. So we create a code of ethics that's uniquely Airbnb, and then we actually have a conversation. At Airbnb, we have an orientation session for new employees. It has about 20 to 25 classes in it per week. I, you know, I went to the orientation group and said, I want an ethics session. I want an hour. And they laughed. And they said, Rob, we're not trying to drive people away their first week. You know, We actually want to welcome them to the company. I said, no. I said, I will do this, and I'll do it in a way that people will actually, I think, appreciate it. So we started doing the classes to uh, orientation. By the way, I would do them myself, even though I was the general counsel of the company. And after the first month, they started, they did blind surveys of all the classes. Guess which class is the number one ranked class in orientation at Airbnb to this day? It's the, the ethics class. And we did it because I didn't go in and talk about the law. I didn't read them what the definition of a hostile work environment was. Instead, I took 15 examples of things that had actually happened at Airbnb, things that employees had done that were ethically questionable. Threw the examples up on the wall one by one, and we had a conversation about it as a group. 
does this violate our code? Why would this violate our code? Or why would it be okay? So by the, what you find is that people love talking about real life examples. They walk into the session dreading it. But the bar is so low that when you actually give them entertaining things to think about and ideas and things that actually relate to real life problems, they actually enjoy it. And I tell them during the session, I say, every person in this room is going to have an integrity moment sometime during their first year at Airbnb. I guarantee it. You're going to have an issue. The question is going to be, are you ready for it? And do you know how you're going to respond? And then after we did it at orientation classes for a little bit, I did a road trip. I did a global tour. I went to every office and Airbnb all around the world and did the same session and got the same response so that everyone in the company is on the same page and they, they're not hearing it from a mid-level HR person. They're hearing it from one of the leaders in the company. So they know it comes right from the executive leadership team in Airbnb. So they know that we're serious about it. And that makes a ton of difference. That's fascinating. And I can see where uh, that would also drive the trajectory for your own career in you know, moving yourself up from counsel to the chief ethics officer, because it lends more credibility to the message that you're carrying. You know, general counsel has a, has a wonderful title. It comes with a certain level of a, a certain position. It comes with it being on the executive team. But I think there's a little bit of fear in going to lawyers. People don't like going to lawyers. They don't like going to HR. I, I think that being approachable and having a few laughs with it. By the way, you know, one of the things we did at Airbnb was we created a group of ethics advisors so people wouldn't have to go to the lawyers. These ethics advisors are like ambassadors to the program. They've got day jobs. They're in engineering, they're in customer support, they're in finance, they're in marketing, but they volunteer their time to learn the code of ethics deeply. And then whenever an issue comes up, we get together as a group on email or on a video chat and we talk about it together. So we're getting input from different cultures and different places inside of Airbnb. So the ethics program is something that's owned broadly within the company. And people aren't afraid because they're going not to the legal team or the general counsel, but they're going to the person who works in the cube right, right next to them to ask a question. Last quarter, David, we got almost a hundred inquiries to ethics advisors. And that's entirely separate from the reporting hotline where people report problems. These are things where people just go to somebody on their team with an ethics question because they're curious and they don't want to do the wrong thing. That, I think, is really important to the heart of the program because it becomes something owned by everyone where we're all comfortable talking about it because it's something, it's a conversation you can have literally with a friend. It's, it's a really interesting approach. And I, I like the idea of involving people at all different levels and all different parts of the organization in, in something like this because different people bring different perspectives. And I'm curious if in doing this, did you learn anything unexpected from people who were getting involved who had different backgrounds? I learn all the time because what I have to do, I have to make sure that I'm not taking Rob Chestnut's view of the world, you know, that's based upon his background, his culture, his age. What I need to do, and I realize this, I need to listen. I need to listen to 30 other perspectives on an ethical issue. And I often find that my mind gets changed by hearing the way that other people with different backgrounds than I do, how they look at a problem. It goes back to why diversity is so important in companies. If I walk into a meeting room and everyone looks like me and they've all got the same background as me, I'm probably not going to come to a very good decision because I'm not going to look at the problem from all the different ways that our customers might look at it. 
So I love walking into rooms that have different people, people that look differently than I do, people that come from different backgrounds than I do, because I typically find that as long as I can slow myself up for a minute and listen, that I'll learn from it. So that's been an effective strategy. Is that one of the things that prompted you to want to write a book about this? Yes, definitely. I listened and learned. And I'll, I'll give you another story. One of the one of the things I learned about our ethics program, I learned from my 13-year-old son and my 19-year-old daughter, believe it or not. I was at home one evening and I was talking about the sexual harassment video, the two-hour sexual harassment video that everybody hates, right? My daughter pipes up. My daughter says, dad, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I had a job at a restaurant last summer and we had to watch it and all my friends had to watch it because they're all working, you know, as waitresses and working in, as waiters and busboys in these restaurants. And she said, everybody just made fun of it. They just laughed and clicked their way through it as fast as they could. She said, I don't remember anything even about it. And I said to her, well, what, what do you do? And she said, you need to do cup of tea. I said, well, what's cup of tea? She said, well, Dad, remember when I was at this college uh, summer program you sent me to at Carnegie Mellon? She said, at Carnegie Mellon, they made all of us watch a video, a three-minute video called Cup of Tea. My daughter then goes on, not exaggerating, 10 minutes describing a three-minute video on sexual harassment to me. Then she runs to her computer, pulls up YouTube, and plays Cup of Tea for me. Turns out Cup of Tea is an animated stick figure video that's three minutes long. It's got almost 8 million views on YouTube. And it compares asking someone for sex with asking if they'd like a cup of tea. And it teaches the basic principles of consent. For example, you, you can't ask someone who's passed out if they want a cup of tea. And someone can decide that they want a cup of tea today and not want a cup of tea tomorrow. But it, the key is it stuck with my daughter. That three-minute video made more of an impression on her than two hours did. So then my son, who's sitting on the sofa, pipes up and says, yeah, Dad, I won't watch a video that's longer than three minutes. He's on YouTube at the time because that's where he likes to hang out. So it's then occurred to me that the universe was speaking to me, that I've got a company full of people who are not that much older than my 19-year-old daughter. This is the way they want to learn. So why am I trying to force my old way of learning on them? So I went back to the office, grabbed one of the ethics advisors and said, we're going to try making our own video and we're going to try to make a point, an ethics point in three minutes. And we're going to try to have a sense of humor about it. Let's do it. So we started making videos. Every month we'd put out a different video. We would make it ourselves. And in fact, I'll show you the, the fancy production equipment that we used to make the video. It's my iPhone. We record the video on an iPhone. We briefly edit and chop it up on our computer. The script is terrible. The acting is terrible. The production is terrible. We spend an hour on the production and we walk in with an idea. There's no script. And I said, you know what? We're going to teach one ethical principle each month and we're not going to force anybody to watch the video. We're just going to email it out and we can see in the background how many unique people actually end up watching. it. So we send it out. We try to be a little bit funny, a little entertaining. What do we find? Well, now we get in a typical month, some months as many as half of the employees at Airbnb voluntarily watch an ethics video. We get at least a thousand people a month watching these things, often 2000 or more. We have people who will come to me and tell me that they binge watched all of the videos or that groups sit down and watch the videos. 
they come and want to know, how can I be in a video? Or they've got an idea for a video. I'm known around Airbnb not as the general counsel and not as the chief ethics officer. I'm known as the guy that does the videos. Whenever people see me around the office, they say, hey, Rob, when are you going to do another video? So just by making a little bit of an effort and being human and authentic and doing it ourselves and giving it to people the way they want to consume the information, we've actually made a significant impact on a number of ethical issues in ways that these longer third-party produced videos could never do. That is a great story about giving people something the way they want to receive it and really thinking about your audience. And it's not something I think a lot of companies pay attention to or feel that they are able to do within the confines of the regulations that they have to follow around these things. And I'm guessing probably Airbnb also has to do other things that follow the, the letter of the law and the regulations, as you said. I've got a compliance poster in the break room. We, we do the longer sexual harassment video that people have to click through. And, and people still have to check a box saying they've read the Code of Ethics. The difference is, David, that I don't pretend that those things are good enough. If you really want to change the culture, you've got to do more than that. Yeah, it brings me back to the story that you told about the hosts and putting a checkbox on the, when they were logging in to make sure that they read that compliance thing. As you said, they probably read it. They might have even checked it. But what are they going to do? Has the company tried to apply the same approach to that kind of ethics? Yes, we actually have a video on bias that we make available for free for our hosts to look at. Again, shorter, but it gives them a sense of this notion of unconscious bias. Because I, I, I don't believe that most of the hosts would intentionally be biased against a, a guest based upon the, the color of their skin. But, you know, David, we're all human and we all tend to naturally gravitate toward people who are like ourselves, unless we recognize that bias and we make an intentional effort to broaden our horizons and spend time around people who are different. And when you do that, you actually find that life becomes a much richer experience because you can learn a heck of a lot more from people who are different than you are than you can from people who are like you are. Absolutely. And making sure that those people feel like they have the opportunity to share their voice and that they feel included in the conversation is so important. That's right. That's it. So you decided to write a book that also has an implication about the type of audience you were targeting. I'm curious how you approach that and why you decided to put these ideas into the format of a book. What, what was your thinking around that? I had never thought of writing a book before, but my fiance earlier in her career was a book agent. So, you know, like a hammer to a hammer, everything looks like a nail to a former <laughs> book agent. Everything looks like a book. So I, I start coming home and talking to her about this sort of stuff. And she looks at me and says, you got to write a book. I said, well, I'm the general counsel of a pretty darn big company. I got 150 lawyers and 21 offices around the world. I don't really have time to write a book. And frankly, who wants to read a book about ethics anyway? She said, I'll get you a writer who will do it with you, and I'll get you a major publishing deal. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. You get me a writer to do this, and you get me a major publishing deal, and I'll write the book. You know, I should have known that my, you know, knowing my fiance, you know, within a month, I had a writer. And I had three different publishing companies all wanting to publish the book. So I said, all right. And it, the idea grew on me because I realized Airbnb, I think, is on a really good path. I think doing good things here, you know, by no means perfect. We still have ethical challenges. We still have people that do things that we're not proud of, but we're on a good path. Wouldn't it be great if what has happened at Airbnb could actually influence other companies? Because the kind of things that we do could work very easily at a whole host of other companies. So I actually got really excited about this idea of a personal mission to talk about this stuff and to encourage companies all around the world 
to inject integrity into their culture because frankly the world needs companies to step up and you know do things that to solve some of the world's biggest problems so i got pumped up about it i gave the writer one night every week every monday night from 6 until 9 we wrote and then i would do a little reading she would go off and write and i would read on sundays and then we'd go back at it and i did that for a year and the result was intentional integrity wow so this was 52 weeks of monday evenings and you were getting together with this writer on a regular basis as somebody who's, you've clearly got a creative bent yourself. How, how did you feel about that process? How involved did you feel in that? Oh, I was involved. The writer was great. The writer had actually written uh, Meg Whitman's book with her. So I actually had, uh, had met the writer back when I was being interviewed for Meg's book. And the writer was great. When when my fiance decided, you know, reached out to her, the writer said, this is the book I wanted to write when I was interviewing Rob back with Meg's book. She said, this is fascinating stuff. So she was really engaged with it. So we, we really got into it and did this together. I, there was one chapter in particular, for example, that I felt really strongly about. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to write it myself because I know what I want it to be like. And I was deeply involved. I know I've read, I've probably read this thing 15, 20 times over and over again, involved with editing and writing sentences and paragraphs. It was a real partnership. And it was one that I enjoyed more than I thought I would, frankly. That's wonderful. And I know that you've already sent the book out, Galleys. You've been getting good reviews from different people. What kind of a response are you expecting in terms of the audience? Because the book hasn't actually come out yet, but it's going to be coming out soon. Well, I'd love to say that I I would get a, a book that shoots to the top and becomes a, a major motion picture and a ride at Disney. Nonetheless, it's a it's a business. It's a it's a book about leadership and doing the right thing. I think that it's a message that the world needs right now. To be honest with you, you know the uh, particularly even after the crisis, you know we we went back. The publisher and I went back, put off the publication date by two months. And the, you know, Joan and I went back and wrote a final chapter on leading with integrity through a crisis. In fact, that's something that's not even in the galleys yet. We just finished it last week. That will make it, I think, even more relevant to what we're going through as a world right now. I think it's the, the right time for this message. I think the world needs companies to step up. I think we need leaders to step up with better behavior. I think we're all a little frustrated with government and government's inability to solve some of these big problems. And we need companies to be more focused on doing the right thing instead of hitting a quarterly profit number. So the reception we've gotten from critics so far and from some academics who have seen it has been, it's been really neat. Uh, I've been really gratified by it. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the book will have influence and encourage companies to do the right thing. Uh, as you say, it's challenging to think about approaching reading a book about ethics and integrity. What have you done to make it more engaging and to make it more inviting to the target audiences? Well, there, there's no Socrates, Plato, John Stuart Mill, or anything like that in the book. It's not a dense ethics book. I didn't major in ethics. I, I've never taken a philosophy class. So the book is practical. And the, the, the best way I can, can speak for a lot of leaders, language is study after study has come out showing that companies that operate ethically and with integrity outperform the market and outperform their competitors. So the neat thing is, you know, there's value in values. You will do better as a business. Why? Well, starts with employees. Employees today want to work at a place that's purpose-driven. They want to have a mission when they go to work. They just don't want to go to work for something that they don't believe in. And they will work harder and stay longer at a place that resonates with their personal values. Data is also showing that customers 
are increasingly making their buying decisions based upon their perception of a company's values. And if a company is aligned with their values, they are going to passionately move their buying decisions in that direction. And by the way, doing operating with integrity means lower audit costs, lower costs for uh, dealing with government regulation. And again, several studies have now all demonstrated this. So if you want your company to be successful, you can't afford to ignore this stuff. And I uh, would also speak, I think, to people's higher sense. Great leaders, I, I think, have to have integrity as part of their game. And that's something that Warren Buffett talks about, for example. If you want to be a leader, you need to have integrity as a key element of your leadership strategy. And this book won't give you integrity, but what it will do is it will give you a very practical roadmap to how to make it part of your life in a company. And if that makes your company more successful, inspires your employees, and brings more loyal customers, why wouldn't you do it? So for very few of the people that I've spoken with who've written a book, is the book the last step in the journey? And I'm curious if you've thought about where this is going to take you next. I have. I'm going to take some time away from Airbnb. I've actually already arranged to move to an advisory role so I can keep my fingers in what's grown up at Airbnb. But I want to go out and take this message to other companies. To me, this is something that is so needed in the world. And frankly, I think a lot of companies recognize it and want to do it, but don't really understand the right way to do it. So I think the kind of experience that we've had at Airbnb is something that a lot of companies would benefit from. So I'm going to get out. I'm going to do uh, things like this, speak at conferences whenever we all gather together in human gatherings again, webcast in the meantime. But I want to be out, go out and be a spokesperson for you know, doing the right thing as a company and operating with integrity. Cool. Well, I know that a lot of listeners are going to be interested in seeing how you go about that and what path you follow. Where can I send them to keep track of your journey? A couple of places. Uh, there's a website, of course, www.intentionalintegrity.com. I also would be happy to be LinkedIn with anybody that's interested in this topic. I post almost daily on LinkedIn different stories that I see from around the world where companies and individuals are operating with integrity. So that's another great way to follow me. And you can order the book through all the major outlets, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I like independent bookstores. There are links to local independent bookstores that you can also get on the website. Oh, fantastic. Well, Rob, this has been really fascinating and I really appreciate your being on the show to share all of that with us. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>